Welcome to Legends of Data and AI. Each episode includes inspiring and actionable data and artificial intelligence insights from global leaders across industries. Your host, Dr. Usama Fayyad, was the first chief data officer at Yahoo and is chairman of Open Insights and executive director of the Institute for Experiential AI at Northeastern University. Welcome everyone to another episode of Legends of Data and AI. Uh, with me today is uh, uh, one of the folks who I consider to be at the epicenter of uh, the big data uh, evolution and, and, and story, especially on the platform side, uh, Amr Awadallah. Uh, Amr did his PhD at Stanford, uh, did a startup that got sold to Yahoo. Uh, I met him when I first joined Yahoo uh, and he was working uh, on, the, on the search product. Um, and then quickly transitioned to uh, the, the big data platform and, and the Hadoop project. Um, then he uh, went off and, and uh, decided to uh, start a company with a bunch of co-founders uh, to basically support uh, in public uh, the open source Hadoop distribution. The company is, is Cloudera, uh, which ended up acquiring yet another public company. And it, it was a, a long and successful journey. Um, and, and since then, uh, uh, Amr moved on to, uh, to Google and, and, and uh, back to, to uh, now having this discussion with us. So Amr, uh, welcome and uh, great to have you here. My pleasure, my pleasure. So you were, you were involved in these early efforts when, when we were convincing Yahoo execs that it's time to contribute to open source. And you know there were debates, what should we be contributing? And at the time we thought Hadoop as a contribution would be good because it was about democratizing uh, search technology, especially MapReduce. But then a transformation happened and the world started thinking of this platform, I'm sure uh, due to you and, and your co-founders as kind of the next enterprise storage platform. I'm curious as part of that journey, you know, when did that transformation happen? I think that uh, transformation happened very org uh, organically across the board. Like as the, the main reason why folks were looking at this platform was really the scalability on the performance uh, from the computation side of things. But as they started putting more data on it, they very quickly uh, saw how economical it is on a data perspective. So the, the dollars per petabyte just as far exceeds anything you can do with any of the commercially available systems. So that very quickly won people over, like especially the especially folks that have larger amounts of data. Uh, and back then there was no cloud options. So on-premise was the only way to scale the storage for that. It became really very quickly the only, the only uh, game in town that can scale to that, uh, to that limit. I would say that computation was still the impetus though. Like for many of them, computation was the beginning. Uh, myself at, uh, at Yahoo, for me, uh, computation was the beginning. Uh, we had a very complex query called the monster query. And the monster query was this massive join between a table full of all of the impressions across Yahoo another one full of all of the clicks across of Yahoo. And we had to do a join between them and, and, uh, and, and, and do a uniqueness on a per cookie basis. And that's a very hard query to do at scale. And that's what won me over to Hadoop was Hadoop was able to finish that query. Uh, but then very quickly, as we started seeing all the other benefits that come along with it, it became a no brainer. Yeah, well, I, I remember those days, uh, amazing days. Uh, you've had a great journey in the world of data and, and search and AI. Uh, could you share with us what prompted you to leave Yahoo and pursue Cloudera? 
was very uh, straightforward. First, I have the entrepreneurship bug in me. Like, uh, again, the Cloudera is my second startup, not the first one. So I always has the, had this innate desire to, to, uh, to start another company. So that was number one. And then number two, that coupled, got coupled with uh, myself experiencing uh, the problems that people suffer with big data, which I see we have a future question where we'll talk about that. And I was suffering from all of these problems at uh, Yahoo with you. And we saw that there is, needs to be a new way for doing that. And uh, uh, we saw it first before many others. And hence, we the thesis was, if this was true for us, then this is going to be true for many, many others as they start to collect and operate more of their business through data. So it became a no-brainer that, yes, that's the time for me to leave Cloud, uh, Yahoo and found Cloudera. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the, the vision and, and the user base is much larger than the user base at, at Yahoo, and that's a, that's a very compelling reason. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a lot of people who define big data in different ways. I'm, I'm curious, in, in your view, uh, as one of the co-founders of, of Cloudera and on other big data platforms out there, what makes data big data? Yeah, I think I think big data is an interim. It's an interim term. I don't see it as a permanent term. It's just defining the fact that we need a, a, a capabilities beyond what we had historically with relational systems. So relational systems were very structured in their nature. And uh, also they weren't processing all of the raw, atomic, uh, raw, original data. They were uh, processing pre-aggregated data. So big data in my view is three things. It's the size. The size is as the limit where you need something that can scale with it. It's the, 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 the rate at which the schema changes. So how dynamic the data is. Is it very static in nature or is it more dynamic in nature? And almost all of us now, we, except for CFOs and those that deal with sales data, almost all of us have data that's changing all the time. We have schemas changing all the time, new columns, new types, et cetera, et cetera. So we need something that can really be flexible in dealing with that. And then third, uh, which might be the most important aspect is uh, the only way that we worked with data was SQL and relation systems, which allowed us to ask some questions here or there, but we weren't doing very deep insights with our data. And, and that's really what defines big data. It's the volume, it's the rate of change, and it's the ability to go, to go beyond what SQL was doing for us. Yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, even I would, I would say even people dealing with sales data are realizing now that they actually need to go beyond just structured <laughs> data, which, which leads me to my next question. Yes. Um, Many estimate that unstructured data uh, is the majority of data uh, being persisted in any organization. Actually, even recently, Gartner started saying that 90% of data in any organization is unstructured. Yet we still have a world where SQL and the structured use of data dominate all use. Um, what is going to change this dynamic and enable the rest of the world, you know, beyond the Googles, the Yahoo's, Ubers, Facebook, Twitters of the world to, to start extracting value from unstructured data? Yeah, first I'd like to clarify that most structured data, it comes from the unstructured data. So even, even the structured data that we're working with, the source of truth for it was the unstructured data uh, and the collection and amalgamation of that data from many systems to then populate these structured systems. I think the issue that we have right now is we have so many uh, of the data professionals and the data analysts out there so hooked up on the old way of doing things, meaning SQL, and, and, and even till this day, they're resisting moving in the newer direction. They, they always want to map it back to what they know, and they want to work with what they know versus trying to adapt to the reality of the new world we're in, which is that the fact that it's mostly unstructured. So that's the major 
inhibitor right now in terms of why most organizations are not moving very quickly towards truly taking advantage of all of their unstructured data. It's the natural resistance from the existing folks that are the custodians of these systems from evolving into the new way of doing things. And it's happening, but it's happening very slowly. Yeah, yeah no, I, I fully agree. It's talent and culture, which actually leads to, to my next question. Um, related to this, Gardner says that 80% of big data projects fail. Um, you know, is, is, there, is, it, is it again the talent or is it something else? What is, what is missing in what we're giving the world in big data that's causing us to have this big failure rate, according to Gartner? I, I would say it's two things, and this is purely my speculation. It might be valid, might not be valid, but from my experience talking to folks, it's number one is the talents. There is just that most organizations don't have, uh, most organizations don't have the proper talent uh, to be able to handle uh, these type of projects. Uh, that remains very true across the world today. Uh, and second, it's the hype. Like a lot of them think a lot of more of what big data and AI can do for them than can really be doable. And sometimes they just wanna do it for the sake of saying they're doing it versus finding a true hard problem that they have not been able to solve in the old way. And then they map it to this new way to get it solved. Uh, big data and AI and simply the means to the end. They're not the end in itself. And many organizations fall for the trap of looking at them as the end, which is which leads to this failure. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a very good point. In fact, uh, working AI solutions uh, appear to consistently have one thing in common, which is a huge dependence on machine learning and data science to basically address the hard problems of intelligence that we don't know how to solve today. Um, how do we get the majority of the world who want to use AI to help their efforts to understand this huge dependence on data and they must have a serious data story before they can even tackle AI realistically? Yeah, see, so that, I, mean, I want to hear your views on, the, on this question as well, Osama. Like this, <laughs> this, this is at the core of why AI is not moving at the speed that it should be, to be honest. Like I'm seeing organizations like Google, of course, and, and Yahoo and Twitter and Facebook uh, advancing in that space very, very well. But if you look at the world at large, it's not actually. It's not advancing uh, at the rate that, that we would like. And if you look at other uh, industries as well, so, I mean, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and so on, all of these are in the tech industry. But if you look at companies in the manufacturing industry, in the oil and gas, and the energy distribution industry, they are really way, way behind in terms of how they can truly uh, leverage the power of their data to get things done. I will tie that back to, again, the lack of skill sets. Most of these organizations don't even have the skill set to be able to handle this. So I think it's on us as uh, uh, technologists in the space to, to make these solutions more accessible to them, which they have not been to date. There has been many folks working on making AI, ML, and data science systems easier to use by the data scientists. But the problem is these folks don't even have the data scientists. <laughs> like that's that's the, that's the problem. So if you go and make it easier for the data scientists, that doesn't really solve the problem. There is a direction towards this um, uh, citizen developer or the no-code, low-code movement. If that gets extend, extended successfully to the ML data uh, science AI space, then maybe that will open it up so, so some of the legacy <clears throat> business analysts and the others to be able to do this for the organizations. I'm a little bit skeptical that that will work. But that's what we need. We need to have these solutions become consumable by the world at large, which they're not right now. They're only consumable by a few organizations across the world. I, I agree with your answer. In fact, I would add to it, um, I think part of the problem, and I, I speak with a lot of boards and uh, executive teams, 
they are attracted to the notion of AI and they think AI is kind of distinct and that you can solve an AI problem. And, and there is a problem in explaining that, hey, to do AI right, at least in today's state of the art, you must have that data in good shape in, in, a, in a very high level of granularity as well as in high quality. And that's what's missing. And therefore they get stuck and, and then they don't know what, what's working and what's not. So I agree, it's a, it's a big, big educational issue. Yeah. I personally, I don't think the no-code, low-code is going to solve it. But, you know, <laughs> I agree with you that we need to do something to make it more accessible. Yeah. Um, which leads me actually to my next question. Uh, you know, uh, the most expensive, you know, since machine learning is so essential, you know, I happen to know that the most expensive part of machine learning is, is, is reliably, is constructing reliable label training data. And this is where actually billions of dollars are spent in, uh, in autonomous driving, in search, in many areas like this, but but no one talks about this expense. Everybody talks about how they used ML to solve the problem, you know, essentially via fancy regression. Why why is this so? Why do we not talk about the the the, the expense and difficulty of collecting the right training data? That's a very very good question. And again, I would like to hear your answer too, since you talk with many folks in the in this space. So I'll give you a few moments to, uh, moments to think about how you would answer. But my my answer would be because the use cases they're going after right now are the, the low-hanging fruit. And for the low-hanging fruit use cases, uh, they tend to already have reliably labeled data. So for example, if they're going over <clears throat> how we're gonna make customer support better and how to streamline our customer support and have better recommendations for the customer support assistance as they are navigating and troubleshooting an issue, they already have the labeled data from all the previous uh, customer support cases that have came across and the capturing of these customer support cases, they're able then to take that and extract it into making the proper clustering or prediction for what the next uh, most likely answer for this problem would be. So that, that'd be my guesstimate. My guesstimate would be this because they're, ha they're still handling very rudimentary problems within their, within their organization. They haven't reached the, the higher complexity problems, which are problems that they have never had a human tackle before. <laughs> and hence they don't have labeled data for it at the first place. And they need to go and collect that labeled data so they can do it properly. So that, that'd be my guesstimate for why. Yeah. I would like yeah. to hear your answer too, Osama. No, I mean, th this is, in, in my opinion, this is strongly related to, uh, I call it the great divide between the AI haves and have nots. The, the AI haves have figured out, hey, you need good data to do real AI and machine learning, and then that a good AI will get you more good data, and that will get you more better AI and so forth. And that's why if you're a retailer trying to compete with an Amazon who's been at it for 20 years or a Google who's been at it for 15 years, you know, good luck closing that divide. It's getting bigger by, by the day. Mm -hmm. um, and that, yet I think there's a responsibility of these AI haves to explain to the rest of the world that, hey, we do spend a lot of energy get, getting that properly labeled data that I call it typically the, the data exhaust that most companies let go without ever capturing it and without realizing how much value is in that human interaction that they're doing day in, day out. And, and yeah. companies like Google and Amazon realized that early on, the rest of the world still actually wastes a lot of that gold that's yeah. in, in that yeah. labeled data that they don't capture. Yeah. Um, which actually leads me to a bigger question for you. And I don't know how you will answer this one, but you know, it's unquestionable that we are entering the new digital world, especially post COVID. Uh, and there's, there's a plethora of data in it. Um, what do you think are the biggest challenges ahead for humanity when we have to deal with this new unprecedented world of high dimensionality, complex and unstructured data? Yeah, so I would, 
again, this is me making up stuff on the fly right now, but I, I, I would, uh, I would, uh, my, 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 I'm leaning towards two answers here. One answer is again what we discussed earlier. Uh, the biggest challenge is the skill set. We just don't have enough uh, well-educated people and well-experienced people in this space to sustain the demand that's out there. So that's a huge, huge challenge that I think we can solve both by continuing to educate, of course, a lot of the upcoming generation uh, to, to how to be experts in this space, but we need to have more automation that we can provide across the world that helps some organizations advance still within this high dimensional complex unstructured world. So that's, uh, that's the first uh, challenge. Uh, the, the second challenge is the bias challenge, right? So how can we properly monitor these uh, uh, algorithms that are doing learning from us and deciding from us how to uh, make certain outcomes and make sure they're not biased in the same way that we were biased. And that's a huge challenge that we see manifest itself in many dangerous ways right now, actually. So, Amr, you've had you've had a fairly unique uh, journey in in the world of data, and you have a unique perspective. I was wondering whether we, you could share with our listeners some stories on good and on bad uses of data that that you've come across. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, the, the most impressive uses of data data that I see are ones that make us superhumans. Right, it's where we stop being a normal human and we become a superhuman because of our access to data. So a very simple example that everybody would get is Google Maps or Google Ways, right? Before Google Maps and Google Ways, all of us were really uh, novices when it comes to navigating a car to get from point A to point B. And we, we keep asking people for directions and they give us wrong directions. And <clears throat> we had these maps in our hands and we would uh, have uh, quarrels with our spouses on <laughs> which way to go and such. And then now with the advent of that uh, capability, uh, amazing, super intelligent routing capability available in all of our hands, we all became superhumans in terms of driving skills. And that opened up other businesses like Uber and Lyft and many others, obviously. Uh, <clears throat> another very uh, um, uh, example of superhumans is in the medicine space. So anything we do that helps doctors or helps nurses uh, come up with the right conclusions and, uh, and not ignore things that maybe the naked eye doesn't see right away, but a computer algorithm can see right away. So these are the cases that truly inspire me is, is everything that <clears throat> looks at how we have been making decisions and how the best of us have been making, the best driver has been driving, how the best nurse has been acting, learning from them and then bringing that learning to be naturally available to us in our normal way of doing things. That These are the most impressive examples I would see. And then the bad examples are the examples that uh, don't correct for biases <laughs> and end up making wrong decisions. That These are the bad examples or uh, abuses by governments like the ones that Snowden highlighted to all of us. I mean, these are the bad examples where now data is being used either to uh, racially profile us or to uh, take away our privacy or, or such. That, that, these are the examples I really worry about. Yeah. yeah. So in, in conclusion, uh, Amr, um, and I, you know, I, I, we could discuss this topic forever, but what would be, like if, if, if you have the chance of addressing uh, executives who are thinking about you know, making AI work in their organization, what, what would be your advice? Where, where should they start? What should they think about? How should they approach it from, a, from an exec perspective? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. I would say the first thing to do is stop saying the word AI. Just like don't talk about AI period because 
<clears throat> we don't keep talking about software and saying software left and software right and hey, we need to have some software in our organization. Of course, you have to have some software in your organization. <laughs> this is this is the future now. So same thing will happen with AI. I think in a couple of decades, we'll stop talking about it. Just a natural way of doing things. Instead of talking about AI, focus on what is the problem that you have? What's the hard problem that you're try trying to solve? And then work with folks like yourself and me and give us lots of money <laughs> to help you uh, narrow down what's the proper way to map that to an AI algorithm that can solve that problem uh, for you. Uh, but but that's that's kind of my main key advice is people get obsessed again with, uh, with I want to have some AI in my organization, and that's completely wrong. What they should be obsessed is, which part of your organization right now is suffering because it's not, it's not fully automated enough. It's not scaling with the business enough. It's not uh, hitting the right margins in terms of cost. And let's see how can we use software and use AI to solve that problem as, as opposed to the other way around. I have AI, I wanna figure out what can I do with it. That's the long way to start. So that's kind of like yeah. the, the very basic advice. And then what you said earlier is don't minimize and don't ignore the importance of capturing the data in a reliable, uh, clean, labeled way, so you can properly do these things. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, in addition to those two points, I would add, um, I mean, and I often do kind of try to remind the world of how weak those AI algorithms are and how brittle they are and how easy they can go off course. Mm -hmm. and, and don't attribute those magical quantity, you know, uh, qualities to them because they are very, uh, honestly, very naive and stupid, the algorithms are. Yeah, and that's why data yeah. plays a bigger role. Yeah, data, data uh, drift it, and AI drift is a huge problem. And if you don't monitor the system properly, uh, so maybe that's the third lesson then, Osama, is don't think that once you put AI out there, then your job is done. No, maintaining and updating and continuously evolving that system is necessary. Otherwise, the brittle factor will, will catch you. That's a very absolutely. good point Kind of end, ending this, I, I wanna I wanna thank you for joining us. Maybe if you have a sentence or two on your on your mind that you wanna kind of wrap up this whole podcast with, what would it be? Oh, that's a surprise question, Osama. I haven't yes. given that question ahead of time, but I would say I would say we're really so lucky to be living in the in the day and age that we are right now. That the the the, the, the amount of <clears throat> advancements that we have seen in the last hundred years compared to what the human civilization had seen in the last, uh, since ever, is <laughs> just mind boggling. The fact that we have two, uh, uh, we have two, not one, but two rovers on Mars right now being operated remotely by us here, using AI to navigate and such, is just mind, mind boggling. So we are so fortunate to be living in this time and it's on us to take advantage, uh, advantage of uh, all of that luck to be living at this time to solve some real, really hardware problems. Thank you, Amr, and uh, I look forward to uh, us working together again on charting the course around this brave new world of data and big data and, and making AI work. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you, Osama. Okay. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Legends of Data and AI. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the world of data and AI. If you're keen to learn more about making data and AI work in the real world and in any organization, Join us next episode and subscribe to the podcast. As always, you can head over to open-insights.com to sign up for our email list, learn more about the work we do, and have access to data resources. See you on the next podcast.